This sermon was recorded online during our season of Shelter in Place in Mountain View, California. As I mentioned, this is Christmas tide in which we are really celebrating the fact that God became one of us in the form of Jesus Christ. It's this liturgical season, and one of the things I appreciate about liturgical seasons is that they do focus on the life of Christ. Advent was the anticipation of the coming of him as our king and the, the anticipation of him coming again. And now in Christmastide, he has arrived. The king of kings is here. God has become man, Emmanuel, God with us. And so we are celebrating in the liturgical calendar. It is a festival. It is a time of celebration and of feasting. And so as, as you heard the text read out today that are focused on what this means just, I want us to notice just a few things about what this tells us about the incarnation. The incarnation is that sort of uh, fancy, a bit antiquated, but very powerful word that means that God has come and taken on human form. He's left, not, you know, he left heaven, descended, as Philippians says, to earth, taking the form of a servant. And he has become one of us, fully one of us that it is the enfleshment, literally, what incarnation means. And so that's what we're focused on. That's what these texts speak to us. And I think there's a few things that I trust will help us. One is just to understand what the incarnation is from these texts. Second would be, why is it necessary? Why was it necessary that God had to come and in the person of Jesus and be fully human as well as fully divine? Why was that so essential? And the third thing is just to make it practical because our texts help us in this way as well. How do we live in light of the incarnation? What does that actually mean for us? How do we use that and apply that in, in our lives right now with all that's going on? So what is, it, what, is it, what is the incarnation? Why is it necessary? How do we live in it? What is the incarnation? As I said, very simply, it's, it's God coming in the form of humankind in the form of a man. Right now in, the, in Matthew's text, it's in the form of an infant, Jesus Christ, the one who's born in Bethlehem, of a virgin, Mary, and of the power of the Holy Spirit. That is the unfolding of, of this incarnation, if you will. And, and John, who we read last week, describes it, I think, in ways that kind of are even bolder. You know, Matthew's giving a narrative. John is giving essentially kind of a theological approach. John says this, in, in, in verse 14 of his first chapter, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And by the word, he's referring to Jesus. He's referring to the logos and he is dwelling among us. And then a little bit, a few verses later, he has this beautiful description. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only, and one and only are both capitalized, referring to Jesus. We've seen the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, but God, the one and only, who's at the Father's side, has made him known. So I just want us to, to kind of camp on this for a moment and realize that Scripture is clear about this thing that we call the Incarnation. Is very clear about the fact that God came to this world 
at a time when, you know, it's before he even made the world. He knew that we would need a Lord, a Savior, a King. He knew that we would need somebody who is just like us, somebody who is one of us. And so that is the incarnation in a nutshell. And it's easy to kind of present that, if you will, but I would be remiss if I didn't give a shout out to the early church and to the church of the first few centuries that really wrestled with what this means. There, in you can imagine that there are a variety of different ideas at that time as to who Jesus was, and some of these ideas, well, many of them were missing the mark. Some said that he was a man, but not really divine. There's a sect, for example, called the Ebionites that held this in in that time. There's another group that said, "Oh no, he was God. He really wasn't a man." Those would be what the, the belief that we call docetism, Latin for kind of he seems to be or he appears to be a man, but he's really not a man. Uh, a lot of this got sorted out during the Council of Nicaea in the fourth century. And at that time, they're wrestling with yet another version of who Christ was uh, proffered by Arius, who said that, well, he was divine, but he's not fully divine. He's divine, but he was created by God the Father. And so he's not a member of the Trinity. And this really, uh, you know, was causing quite a lot of consternation. So in the early church, we have the formulation of what we take for granted in many ways today, the formulation of the Trinity, the formulation of what it means to be incarnate, God incarnate. So give God thanks for the saints that have gone before us for that. Now, these aren't just facts, fun facts from antiquity. I'm, I'm saying these because the reality is, even today, we know that there are still vestiges of this in place. I, I think if you think about the Ebionite thinking, where Jesus really isn't divine, he's just a man, that's very pervasive still in our society. I mean, most people, if you ask them who Jesus was, and they're not particularly contentious, they will say, oh, he was a good guy, a moral philosopher, a teacher someone who was concerned about the poor and, and those that were dispirited, somebody who championed the little guy, if you want to think of it that way. But, and he spoke truth to power. But like a lot of people that did that, you know, he came to a tragic end. He was eventually killed, and that was the end of his ministry. But he's still inspirational to us today. I don't know if you've heard that recently. I can probably point to a few people in my friend circle that, that you know, are not church circle, but friend circle that, that believe that. And so these things are still here. And it's important for us to understand the, the incarnation that he is, as the formulation from Nicaea said, true God and true man. We, we've adapted that as fully human and fully uh, divine. So that's a little bit of, of what we mean by the incarnation, why it's helpful for us uh, in terms of understanding uh, how to perhaps connect with people that have different ideas of who Christ is. But what is it that makes the incarnation necessary? Why was it that Jesus had to appear? Why was it that God had to be wrapped up in flesh and come to the earth? And I think this is where our New Testament reading from Ephesians really is a gift to us. In fact, you know, I can just imagine Paul being so excited about making this point to the church at Ephesus. You know, this is, it starts with verse 3. He's, he's done the first two verses, our greetings, the standard greeting that was typical at the time. But now he's, he's really getting into what, what he has committed his life to, what has redefined his relationship with God, and that his, that's his redemption in Christ. 
He's like somebody who is who's excited to give a present that he's been thinking about and planning on and anticipating the response. I don't know if you can connect with that. Perhaps there's somebody, maybe this year, uh, although it was hard to give presents this year, but maybe in years past where you thought of them and you thought this would be just the gift that they need. You planned it, you perhaps you made it or you bought it. Maybe you're online a lot trying to analyze which variant was going to be the best one for them. And then you wrapped it up, you made it special, you handed it to them, and you couldn't wait to see their reaction. You're looking at every kind of fiber in their face to, to get some kind of understanding of how they're going to receive it. You want them to love it just as much as you do. I think that's, in essence, how Paul is coming to the church at Ephesus with the passage that we've just read. And why he's doing that is because he is saying, he's giving us the reason why God had to be incarnate in the person of Jesus Christ. And the reason is so that we would be redeemed so that we could be reconnected, saved, be belonging to God once again, holy in his sight. Verse 7 of Ephesians 1 says this, In Jesus we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of his grace. This is what Paul wants us to know. This is the gift that God has given us in the person of his son, Jesus Christ. This is why incarnation is necessary. Why is it in, why, so why, you may ask, is it necessary? Well, first of all, Jesus comes to be the sacrifice on our behalf. You cannot be a sacrifice if you are not able to die. You have to be human. His, he, his blood is shed on the cross for us. Only a living human, only a living being uh, has blood to shed only a person can be killed for another person in this context. Yes, the Jews had animal sacrifices. But the point is, you have, in order to give yourself as a ransom for many, you have to be alive. You have to be human. You have to have the same capabilities and the same aspects that each one of us does. That's the way that Jesus is able to be a ransom for us. So his human nature is critical in order for him to be an effective sacrifice. But in the same way, his divine nature is just as critical for our salvation because God is giving himself through his son Jesus, through the second member of the Trinity, in our place. He is establishing by this act a new covenant. Jesus' divine nature is involved in a way that but as he establishes this covenant, because of his divine nature, he is saying this covenant cannot and will not be broken because God says it is so. And so you need both the human and you need the divine working together. You know, if we're able to have communion together, the next time we have it, we, the part of the words of institution are, this is, are the words of Christ. This is the new covenant in my blood. That was accomplished both through his humanity and his divinity working together. There's been various ways throughout history that this has been described. Athanasius says, the Son of God became man that we might become God. Now, that is a formulation that is still present and strong in the Eastern Orthodox Church. The West kind of put up, you know, a little... Uh, 
pushback on that. They were a little concerned that that could be misinterpreted. And so their formulation was that we might be made in the image of God, that we would bear his image, image bearers, that we would be in the likeness of Christ. So, But the point is, because of the redemption, God becoming human in the person of Jesus Christ, that allows us to connect with the divinity of God through Christ himself. We'll talk about that a little bit, but just a little kind of forecast. This is part of the Ephesians when it's talking about the Spirit has been given to us as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come in our lives, that we are indwelt by God through his Holy Spirit. So there's this amazing uh, process going on of God becoming man and allowing us to participate, to, to understand, to experience some aspect of his divinity. So why is the incarnation necessary that we would, it's necessary for our salvation. It's necessary for us to be redeemed. But it's also necessary because God had to show us how we are to live. Psalm 84 that was read by Key and Anna talks about that we are, we, we, uh, we have our hearts set on pilgrimage. We are in this life, but we're on a journey to being uh, through this, this time of walking with God, to being perfected, becoming more and more like him, so that ultimately we will be able to say, as Isaiah did, you know, excuse me, as Isaiah, as Jeremiah says, that we are singing with joy because we are looking forward to the courts of the Lord. We're fainting for that. We, we just, we can't wait to be there. And so that is our destiny, but we can't get there on our own. Jesus in our readings is presented as the good shepherd, and, and we are sheep. You know, we need a shepherd. We don't know where we would go, how to get there without the guidance of a shepherd. We don't know where the green pastures are. We don't know where the water is that we need to survive. We can't be protected from wild animals and, uh, and, and thieves that would steal us away. How can we survive unless we have a shepherd? And so the reason that Jesus had to come as God wrapped up in flesh is to show us how to live, what it means to be that original perfected human that Adam started off being. Jesus is restoring us as we walk with him, as we follow him. And as we do that, the Jeremiah 31 prophecy says that our mourning will turn into gladness that God will give us comfort and joy instead of sorrow, that he will satisfy the priest with abundance, and my people will be filled with my bounty, declares the Lord. So that's the end of that Jeremiah reading. It ends on verse 14. But verse 15 in that same reading is what Matthew speaks to, what Matthew uses in his own uh, words when he says that there is a, a voice of the one crying in the wilderness it, it's, it says, um, where'd it go? Yeah, a voice is heard in Rama, weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because there are no more. And I think what that tells us when we now talk about how to live out the incarnation, we, through this passage in Matthew and what has become, you know, handed down to us in our culture as the, the, this episode where he kills every Israelite boy under the age of two. We know that in our culture is the slaughter of the innocents. There was a Rubens exhibit a couple years ago at the Palace of the Legion of Honor in San Francisco, which we saw. 
And one of Rubin's paintings is of the slaughter of the innocents, done without sort of full detail, but sufficiently enough to know, to see the evil that was going on, to see the systematic elimination of these precious, innocent boys. And and why does Matthew include that? Because he wants us to know that, uh, that Jesus is fulfilling the prophecies. He's, one, someone who's called out of Egypt. Second, he is fulfilling the prophecy of, of being the, the prophecy that as he's coming, he, since he's the coming king, he is the, the, the kingdom of heaven. He is the king of that kingdom of heaven, the phrase that Matthew uses throughout his gospel. And there is no earthly kingdom that will come against it. And Herod knows this at some level, which is uh, part of the reason why he is, he is doing what he's done. Um, but Jesus is showing, but uh, Matthew is showing us through this, to live incarnationally is to, to know that God is in charge, to know that he is moving ahead of us. We can't figure it out. I, you know, Joseph is told sort of one dream after another, another first go to Egypt because Herod is looking to kill uh, the boy. And then it's time to come out of Egypt uh, and then, but don't go to Jerusalem. Go, go to uh, Galilee. The Lord is leading Joseph, and by extension, the infant, his son, um, bit by bit. And we don't know why the Lord is choosing to do that. The point is to live incarnationally is to let God be in charge, because we can't figure out all His moves. We can look at something as tragic as the slaughter of the innocents and wonder why God didn't choose another way. Why couldn't Herod have dropped dead before he gave the order? And then nobody would have to go to Egypt, and then we wouldn't have all this, and we'd have a lot of innocent boys not, not uh, being killed. There are things that we don't understand about how God works, but we do understand this, that to live incarnationally means to say, Lord, I know your purposes are good purposes. I know you work out everything according to the counsel of your will. I know that you who did not spare your own son, but gave him up for us all, how will you not graciously give us all things? And I say that because I know that in this time and in our lives, whether personally or, by, or the lives that we share by virtue of being in this you know, post-election season and in this pandemic, which is still raging, in fact, raging you know, darkest before the dawn, we hope, and all that's going on, that, that it's... it's we rightly turn our hearts to the Lord and say, Lord, what's going on? But to live incarnationally is to say, Lord, I trust that you're moving in your, your purposes are being achieved. So you know what I want to do in order to respond to that, Lord? I just want to be like Joseph. I want to be attentive to the leading of your spirit. I want to follow where you are taking me. I don't want to try to second guess. I don't want to try to put my mind in front of yours because I don't know what it is. I just want to know how to respond. I need the wisdom that you give me. I need to hear your word as I open up scripture. You will speak to me through that. So don't hear in in these comments from me that it's just somehow we just ask the Holy Spirit to tell us what to do. We do do that, but he he is working through the wisdom of counselors in our lives. He's working through his word. He is working through times of prayer. He's doing all those things. But he's particularly working through his spirit in us. I mentioned earlier that uh, the Ephesians passage speaks about his Holy Spirit indwelling us. 
And sometimes, if we're not careful, we, we, we fail to live out the incarnation because of challenges in our life or because of enticements in our life, because we get distracted by things that we know aren't really of God, but we just kind of like, you know, we, we just kind of like them. Uh, and that's where Paul's letter to the Galatians comes in, where he says, you know, put to death the deeds of the flesh by the power of the Holy Spirit. Walk in the Spirit. Don't, don't live anymore for the things that you used to. And he rattles off a whole host of things, uh, sexual immorality, debauchery, um, things of that sort, pretty, pretty big and tough stuff. But he also uses things that perhaps are a little bit more ordinary in our lives, envy and uh, selfish ambition and anger and rage. These are things that are not part of following the shepherd. These are things that, that diminish us as incarnate beings. So, so the Spirit indwells us. The Spirit is making us more like Christ. And when we act out of that flesh, we are diminished. We are returning to that separated place that God is rescuing us from. So the incarnation means everything. Without it, we would not understand who God is we would not have the salvation and the redemption that comes from the fact that he is both fully human and fully divine. We would not know how to follow him, how to live for him. We would not know what all the deeds of the flesh and, and how to put them to death. So his spirit in us allows to live incarnational lives in increasing ways. And that is just one of the greatest privileges that I can think of. And so as you head into this new year, as we head into this new year together, my prayer for all of us, my prayer for us as Holy Trinity, is that we really, people would look and say, this is, a, this is a church that really knows how to live incarnationally. That when I see them, I see more of Christ and less of them. I want that, as people look at us, to be able to say that. I want Vicki to be able to say that of me more and more. I want my friends and my family members. And that's my prayer for each of us. Amen. Thanks for being with us online in the sermon podcast. To find out more about Holy Trinity Silicon Valley, head to www.holytrinitysv.org.